You load 16 tons, and what do you get? St. Peter, don't call me because I can't go. <coughs> Those words were made famous by Tennessee Ernie Ford way back in 1955. And Billy says he had a 45 of the record. <coughs> but equally as great is the man who wrote the song, Merle Travis. He wrote the song way back in the 1940s. And that little chorus about getting older and deeper in debt and owing one's soul to the company store was a direct quotation from Travis's father, who was a coal miner in Mullenberg County, Kentucky. As an aside, Mullenberg County also inspired an epic song by John Prine entitled Paradise, whose father, too, had been a coal miner there. It goes, the coal company came with the world's largest shovel, and they tortured the timber and stripped all the land. Well, they dug for their coal till the land was forsaken. Then they wrote it all down as the progress of man. Daddy, won't you take me back to Mullenberg County, down by the Green River where paradise lay? Well, I'm sorry, my son, you're too late in asking. Mr. Peabody's coal train has hauled it away. What a mournful song, but a beautiful song. But back to Merle Travis and 16 Tons. We all understand this bit, I think, about getting another day older and deeper in debt. Can anybody say amen to that? But what of this business about owing my soul to the company store? That's a strange little phrase. Does anyone have any idea what it means? I'm glad you asked, let me tell you. <laughs> a hundred years ago, there was a common practice throughout coal country in the Middle Appalachians and textile country in the Southern Appalachians. A big company would come to town and they would build a mine, or they would build a mill, and they wouldn't stop there. They would build an entire village around that operation. Homes, schools, churches, grocery stores. They would hire scores, if not hundreds, of workers. And in many cases, they would pay wages to these workers with company vouchers, not cash. And you would take these vouchers and pay the rent on the home you owned, excuse me, that you rented, that was owned by the company. You would take those vouchers and drop them in the plate at church, and the preacher would have to go at the end of each week over to the company store and trade those vouchers for money. You would take those vouchers and go to the company store, not Walmart, and buy your groceries and buy your household goods. And what happened was if you overspent your vouchers, You are in debt to the company store. I don't have firsthand experience of this in coal country, but this was a common practice in my hometown as it relates to textiles. This is the Achota Cotton Mill, or what once was the Achota Cotton Mill in my hometown. It was built 110 years ago on the north side of Calhoun, Georgia, and over the course of its history, it produced bed sheets and bedspreads, corduroy, yarn. It was a massive operation for its time and was so all the way to the 1980s. The mill is now gone now. Mohawk Carpets has a building that sits there, and the only thing that remains is that giant coal smokestack that you see. It is still there. And the company there, the Achota Cotton Mill, built not just this, but to the far right, you'll see my far right, 
you'll see the company store. And about a dozen streets of these little clapboard houses, they started a school there and a church there, the Achota Baptist Church, and it is still there. And this entire little mill village gathered up around this mill. And the men and the women, a lot of them, died in that village exactly as Merle Travis sang and wrote, in debt to the company store. They worked hard. They provided a living for their families, but at the end of their lives didn't own anything because it was all owned by the company. It's an interesting phenomenon to this very day. The kids and the grandkids of these mill workers, those who grew up in that mill village, to this very day are some of the toughest, meanest, most contrary, hard headed people you will ever meet in your life. If someone says in my hometown, I grew up in the mill village, you better step aside. You better watch out for them. The man or the woman who grew up in that mill village will fight you. And they won't lose a wink of sleep if they have to kill you. And if you were to overcome them in some kind of struggle, well, brother, you have earned it. They were a rough bunch. Now, why are they that way? Well, I, I, I didn't grow up in the Mill Village. I went to school with a few of the kids from the Mill Village. I pastored a bunch of people from the Mill Village, and everything I said is exactly right. Why were they that way? Well, first of all, they were raised poor. And it was hard scrabble, and they were hungry. And poverty doesn't make you lazy. It makes you tough. And these folks were tough. Two, they were raised in rock-throwing distance from the wealthiest neighborhoods in my hometown. Now, they're over by the mill. And you stay over there by the mill. And occasionally, one of those young men might stray over into one of the wealthy neighborhoods, say, to pick up a young lady for a school dance. Or some of the kids would get together and say, let's go trick-or-treating up on Cherry Hill, where all the rich neighborhoods were. And they would be told right quick in a hurry to get back to the other side of the tracks where they belonged. And so when you're raised poor and you see all this wealth right across the street, but it's wealth you will never obtain, well, it makes you pretty angry. And they could be an angry bunch. And that brings me to the third thing. Their anger turned into this sort of resentment. As they watched the owners and the managers of the meal operations grow and prosper, but not them. They were economically trapped right to the very last when the giant mill was sold and closed down in 1985 and all those little houses were sold to investors who turned into slumlords who today, this very day, take advantage of a whole new group of people that are poor, largely brown and Spanish-speaking. But that's a talk for another time. What an introduction on this Labor Day weekend, right? You feel better about your job. As grim as the picture is, maybe a Mill Village life, loading 16 tons, it's not near as dismal as something said in the book of Ecclesiastes. These words are not from a textile mill worker, not from a coal miner, not from a folk music songwriter. Traditionally, these words are ascribed to King Solomon, a wealthy man, grotesquely so, a man who had everything, and yet he sounds as cheated 
as aggrieved as any working man who never got a fair shake. To verses 18 through 23 of Ecclesiastes chapter 2. I know you don't have the bulletin today, is that right? You have to keep your heads up. See, that's great. So if your head is down, you better be praying and not texting or otherwise. First, verses 18 through 23. I came to hate all my hard work here on earth. For I must leave to others everything I have earned. And who can tell whether my successors will be wise or foolish? Not a good day to go look at your will and think about your children and grandchildren. We'll just keep reading here. Yet, they will control everything I have gained by my skill and hard work under the sun. How meaningless. So I gave up in despair, questioning the value of all my hard work in this world. Some people work wisely with knowledge and skill, then must leave the fruit of their efforts to someone who hasn't worked for it. This too is meaningless, a great tragedy. So what do people get in this life for all of their hard work and anxiety? Another day older and deeper in debt, I think. Their days of labor are filled with pain and grief. Even at night, their minds cannot rest. It is all meaningless. <laughs> I was going to say this is the word of God, thanks be to God, but I don't know if we want to say thank you, Lord, for these words. I don't think this holds up completely to textual scrutiny, but it's one way of thinking about King Solomon and his writings. Some interpreters say that he wrote, he wrote three books, Song of Songs, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes, and that he wrote these at three very different stages of life. Some interpreters say that he wrote Song of Songs while he was a young, lusty, vigorous man. Go read the book sometimes. It is at minimum PG-13. R is probably more appropriate. I like to read it to my wife on our anniversary just to see what will happen. <laughs> oh, I do declare. <laughs> then he collects proverbs. He collects proverbs in midlife, interpreters say. He moved on to more meaningful work besides just being obsessed with the opposite sex. And then late in life, he looks back over the years, contemplates his own eventual demise that is coming, and the futility of it all comes crashing in on him, and he writes the book of Ecclesiastes. I have to tell you, the ecclesiastical Solomon is nobody I want to get stuck with at a cocktail party. Give me that guy from Proverbs. Smart, witty, world traveler. Knows the answers to all the trivia questions. Quick with a joke and to light up your smoke. This guy's a lot of fun. And even that song of song, Solomon. I mean, he's scandalous. And you have to watch him at dinner where his hands are. Make sure where they are under the table. And you might leave blushing, but you will leave entertained. Because he is a card. But Ecclesiastes, Solomon. Johnny Raincloud. What a drag. It would be like getting trapped in a conversation with Archie Bunker. Or maybe having to interview Nick Saban after a football game. 
Those of you who know, know. Look at what he says. He hates leaving his accomplishments behind where he can't be in control of them. He's ticked off that the world will go on without him. Other people, how dare they, are not going to work as hard as I did. And they are still going to get my stuff. Worse, these people aren't going to do with my stuff what I want them to do with my stuff. It's like discussing politics with my Uncle Jerry. You all probably have an Uncle Jerry. I actually have two. This one's on my father's side, not my mother's side, in case anybody in my family is listening. This Uncle Jerry is a curmudgeon. He is perpetually offended. He sees everything as a ruse to take what is his. And I want to say, who hurt you, bro? And the only thing keeping him alive is his need to keep complaining about life. Do you know these people? I mean, God, dear God, save me from a long, torturous, prolonged death and simultaneously save me from becoming the kind of person where my soul dies long before my body. This handsome gentleman here, is Wellington R. Burt. He died a hundred years ago, and unless you are from maybe the Saginaw, Michigan area, you probably have never heard of him. He was a minor politician for a short while, but he made his name and he made his fortune in the timber business. At one point, he was an unrivaled lumber baron, the richest man in the world. And he became so because of his hard work. He made $13 a month in the cold Michigan winters chopping trees where he would work 18 hours a day, continuing to work his way up through the ladder, and he apparently saved every penny that he had. And he was also ruthless. He was a hard man who, for example, would starve and work his horses to death in order to keep from buying them food or investing any more money in them. When he died, he was known as the Lone Pine of Michigan because he had alienated everyone around him. A year after his death, his children and his grandchildren gathered on his estate to open his will. No one had really had a good relationship with him, but they were stunned at what they heard. Outside of a tiny stipend of a few thousand dollars to be shared by his heirs, all of them were cut out of the will. All of them. And what has become known in legal circles as the spite clause. He wrote this. The liquidation of my estate shall not be dispersed until the expiration of 21 years after the death of my last surviving child or grandchild. The last surviving grandchild lived until 1989. Triggering the 21-year clause. In 2010, the last dozen living descendants of Wellington R. Burt finally received their disbursement. It was over $100 million. But he was going to make sure anyone that he knew would never see a penny of it. 
I don't know what they were fighting about. I don't know if it matters. But what a miserly, miserable way to come to the end of your life. And you can arrive there, be it a rich, eccentric lumber baron, or a black-dusted coal miner, or a poor textile worker, a kid from the mill village, or even, friends, blessed, fortunate, white, middle-class people who live at the beach. It's easy to look out at the world and to stop caring. It's easy to throw up your hands and say, well, just to hell with it all. As we age, it is far too common for apathy to become the norm. We lose our ability to feel, to empathize, to engage, to do the good work we have been given to do. Our hearts shrink and we grow cold. It's all empty and pointless. becomes not only our mantra, it eventually can become your obituary. Thankfully, Solomon redeems himself, though, in the end. Verses 24 and 25, after that doleful, mournful thing that he has to say. I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy food and drink and to find satisfaction in work. Then I realized that these pleasures are from the hand of God. For who can eat or enjoy anything apart from Him? This is why this otherwise tragic book was kept for reading by the old Jewish rabbis who collected the Old Testament. It's not the despair of Solomon. It's the destination that that despair eventually takes him. He resolves the meaningless of life by coming to a simple conclusion. And it's a good one. Eat good food. Drink good drink. Find work that satisfies you and thank God for all of it. Everything else is chasing after the wind. And this isn't the only time Solomon comes to this conclusion. Next verses, please. In chapter 3, I concluded there is nothing better than to be happy and enjoy ourselves as long as we can. And people should eat and drink and enjoy the fruits of their labor, for these are gifts from God. Next, Ecclesiastes 5. I have noticed one thing, at least, that is good. It is good for people to eat, drink, and enjoy their work under the sun. During the short life God has given them to enjoy your work and accept your lot in life, this is indeed a gift from God. God keeps such people busy enjoying life. And one more. Eat your food with joy. Why is this so funny? But it is, I guess. Drink your wine with a happy heart. For God approves of this. Wear fine clothes with a splash of cologne. That's for every pre-adolescent boy. Live happily with the one you love. Through all the meaningless days of life that God has given you under the sun. Listen. The loved one God gives you is your reward. For all your earthly toil. So whatever you do. Do it well. Here at the end of my talk, this isn't the usual invitation given in a Protestant church. I was just writing about this this week. It was Dr. Bill Leonard who best described my religious upbringing. Speaking for many of us, and some of you will know, he said this, 
Some of us were saved hard. Sweating like we had been to hell that morning to come back to the revival service to tell everybody about it that night. The typical invitation was given after the preacher had raved on for about 45 to 132 minutes telling us that hell is hot, heaven's sweet, judgment sure, and Jesus saves. And then the invitation would start, and the invitation would be longer than the sermon. Can I get an amen? And it was, this is the getting saved hard part. The preacher would beg us to come to that altar, and we sinners would resist and hang on to the pew. And it was always 400 verses of just as I am. The last time I checked the Baptist hymn, hymnal, there are over 600 freaking songs in the Baptist hymnal, and we only knew one. 400 verses. And as I've said many times, I would sometimes go down because the Falcons were on at 1 o'clock and somebody's got to take one for the team so we can get out of here. The point of the invitation was to do something. Make a decision for God's sakes. Give up your sinful ways. Do something worthy for the Lord. I appreciate that. I respect that. All of that has shaped me. So here's my invitation today, an opportunity for you to do something. Don't come up here to a mourner's bench. Go home. Grill a steak. Make a salad. I say that because the last time I lampooned vegetarians, I got a lot of hate mail about that. Have a beer. Pour a glass of wine. If you can't drink those things, southern sweet tea is the best next thing that you can get. Have dessert. Put your feet up. And come Tuesday or whenever it is that you have to go back to work, go do the work that you love to do. And if you don't love the work you're doing, for God's sakes, find something you do love. You're going to have to do it for the next 50 years. It ought to be something that gives you some satisfaction in life. If you have good food, If you have something good to drink, if you are loved by a good man or a good woman, you have good friends and good work, you have everything there is to have in this world. And there is nothing else. So my invitation is for you to make the decision Solomon made. I decided there is nothing better than to enjoy good food, good drink, and to find satisfaction in work. For indeed, these are the blessings from God's own hand.